Lord, we thank you so much for your continued grace to us. We thank you for your faithfulness in giving us Christ. And we thank you that you are the one who maintains our salvation. We would confess that if it were left up to us, we would lose our own salvation. We can't earn our salvation to begin with. We can't maintain our salvation. And we are wholly uh, dependent upon your grace. And so we pray for your uh, mercy now and your grace. Give us understanding of the word. Let it be clear to us. And let us seek you in all things that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Every now and again, the Bible makes use of some well-placed sarcasm in order to get its point across. Sarcasm, of course, as we know, can be used to uh, degrade and to insult people, and it can be used uh, in some very wicked ways, quite honestly. But sarcasm, used in the right way, can be used to communicate truth in some pretty pointed ways. You might recall, for instance, the story in 1 Kings 22, where Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and Ahab, the king of Israel, talk about uh, getting together and uh, having this alliance against Syria. And they wanted to go and reclaim Ramoth-Gilead. And so as they are talking together, Jehoshaphat tells Ahab, hey, maybe we should seek God's will on this first before we go to see if this is what he wants us to do. And so 400 prophets gather together, and all 400 of these prophets tell them that they have uh, the Lord's blessing. But they want something more specific, uh, and so they seek out someone who will directly inquire of the Lord for them, and they bring Micaiah the prophet. Uh, But this is really against Ahab's will. Ahab complains, as you remember, and he says, you know, Micaiah never says anything good about me. And Jehoshaphat says, oh, don't say that. Let's bring him and see what he says. So when the prophet Micaiah shows up, we read the following in 1 Kings 22, verses 15 through 17. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he, as Micaiah, replies to him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, this is Micaiah again, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And of course, the passage goes on where Micaiah says that this actually is part of God's plan, that these 400 prophets would deceive you so that you would go into battle and die. But this passage is also dripping with some well-placed sarcasm by this man of God. I mean, you could almost hear him saying, you know, go, you will succeed for sure. You're definitely going to win this battle. But this isn't the only place in Scripture where... um, we see sarcasm utilized. Elijah sarcastically mocks the prophets of Baal when he charges, or, um, challenges them to a duel. In 1 Kings 18, 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and has to be awakened. He's mocking their god. 
Job uses some sarcasm with his friends. Of course, you know that Job's friends have come to comfort him in his suffering. And all of the comfort that he has, uh, that the friends have given to Job have been useless, have been pointless. In fact, at the end of Job, God rebukes the friends for this uh, bad advice, this bad counsel. But Job, in Job 12, verse 2, uses a little bit of sarcasm and says this, No doubt you are the people. And wisdom will die with you. You guys are so wise and so smart that wisdom's going to die with you. You're, you're the last people on earth who are wise. God, in the same book of Job, uses sarcasm uh, to respond to Job himself. And in Job 38 and verse 5, God says to Job uh, about the earth, Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. He's being sarcastic with Job. Surely you know the measurements of the earth if you're so wise as you think you are, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? Tell me, Job. Come on. The blind man healed by Jesus in John chapter 9 took a sarcastic jab at the religious leaders when they continued to pester him in John 9, 27. And he answered them, uh, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Do you want to join Jesus as well? Now, while this may be uh, disappointing for some of you, today's message is not five reasons why we should be more sarcastic as Christians. Okay? On the other hand, there is hardly a verse in our passage today in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that isn't sarcastic. It's dripping with sarcasm and irony and a little bit of mockery all over the place. And just like Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that there is a time for everything, today's passage reminds us that there is a time for some well-placed, grace-filled, I'll add, Christian sarcasm. What exactly is it that Paul has placed in the crosshairs of his Christian sarcasm? It is the pride of the Corinthian Christians. Pride is, as we would acknowledge, an institution worth toppling. Paul has no intention of messing around. And so we get to experience Pauline sarcasm on full display. Pride is worth mocking. Pride is worth toppling. Because it's opposed to the Lord. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in today's passage. Sometimes, in order to help someone see the truth, we kind of have to shock them into recognizing it for what it is. And that's exactly what Paul does in the passage today. He uses a little bit of well-placed sarcasm to shock his readers into realizing the folly of their own pride. And so let's read the passage uh, today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Beginning in verse 8, I'll try to enunciate it where the sarcasm is as best I can. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign. So we would share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, 
you're wise in Christ. We, we are weak, but you, you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, in order to get our bearings here, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And the first... Uh, for the first four chapters here, really through the end of chapter four, Paul has been talking about one thing in particular, and that is the folly of the Corinthians engaging in sectarianism. We began this section when uh, they simply, you know, said, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and, and Paul says, that, that's not how we ought to act. We ought not to uh, divide ourselves in that kind of a way. And then Paul kind of shifts a little bit and puts his crosshairs on the reason why they are engaged in sectarianism. And of course, as you know, the reason for this is because they have pursued, just flat out gone after, worldly wisdom. And Paul spent a lot of time contrasting godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. Paul has uh, called uh, worldly wisdom folly. And in fact, he actually also called godly wisdom folly. And really what he was doing there was he was demonstrating that godly wisdom to the world looks foolish. It looks like folly. And so what, what Paul is saying is it's the foolishness of preaching that saves people. It is what the world thinks is a foolish system that actually is a godly system. Why does God do this? We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because he delights to crush the wisdom of the wise. God wants to put the wisdom of the world on full display for everyone to see so that he can bring it down and show that he is superior over that and his wisdom is better. The gospel is a message that appears foolish to the world. As we said, as we looked through this passage, uh, how many Christians are invited to the table when it comes to addressing the problems of the world today? How many Christians would be invited to the table uh, of, of academia or, or scholarly works to be able to say, I think Jesus is a solution, is the solution to the problems today. We would be laughed out of the room. We would be mocked because the world perceives Christianity as foolish. And so what Paul has been saying is, uh, you need to take the foolish message, the, the and we'll put this in quotes, the quote-unquote foolish message of the gospel. And so this is what Paul has been doing throughout this book so far. And then in last week's text, Paul reminded the Corinthians not to be puffed up or not to be proud. And today's passage really is an exposure of how puffed up they really had become. It's an exposure of how proud they were. So back in verse 6, he says, don't be puffed up. And then in today's passage in verse 8, he says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign. So we would share the rule with you. Now in Paul's day, the philosophers were promoting a certain kind of self-sufficiency as desirable. This was, uh, for the Stoic philosopher, the goal. And Paul kind of plays on this a little bit, this 
desire for self-sufficiency, and he mocks them by utilizing some sarcasm and says, you have it all. (laughs) You've got everything that you need. The Corinthian problem clearly stated was that they thought they had arrived. They thought they were self-sufficient. We would uh, identify this type of philosophy that tells the Christian that they are self-sufficient, that they have all they need in themselves. We would identify this kind of philosophy, broadly speaking, as man-centered theology, not God-centered theology. Man-centered theology, at its core, refuses to allow God to be God. Man-centered theology is proud. Man-centered theology doesn't want any help. Man-centered theology loves all the doing yet it never gazes on Christ. Man-centered theology says, just give me the rules that I have to obey and doesn't concern itself with the loving of Christ. Man-centered theology would rather hear what I'm supposed to do than to know who I'm supposed to love. And by the way, we need both. Uh, And for those of you who were with us uh, in our book study that we did a few months back, The Whole Christ, you will know that antinomianism or the casting off of the law is not the solution to legalism. We don't want to separate God from his, uh, God's laws from his person. We want to maintain both of those things. We don't want to say, I can obey God's laws without loving his person, or I can love the person of God without obeying his laws. We need both of those realities. And man-centered theology falls into one of these ditches. It's almost as if Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at all that you've done without God. You know, bravo, great work, good job, you guys. Matthew Henry uh, says this about this passage. He says, they are full of themselves without God and Christ. And of course, we would affirm uh, this error. We would affirm that they are thinking in wrong ways like this. We would not affirm the error. We would affirm that Paul is diagnosing this as he ought to. And we would respond to the Corinthian problem by saying, you are not sufficient in yourself. You are not God. He is. And we would echo that for our own uh, audience here today. None of you are God. God is God. We need to be injected with a good dose of Christian humility. We need to know that we must ask for help, of course, first and foremost, from Christ himself. We must not presume to think that we are the ones who can make it on our own, in our own steam. Christian theology and Christian sanctification is about the preeminence of Christ. The centrality of the lordship of Christ as I pursue my Christian walk. My daily, hourly need, moment by moment need for Christ. We must understand that we cannot lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. That we must admit that we are weak people who are sinful and desperately in need of grace. The Corinthians fail to understand this, and so Paul takes the opportunity to mock them sarcastically. We actually see something kind of similar to this in Revelation 3 and verse 17, when we read, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If you think 
that you are sufficient, you are not. Paul says in another statement of sarcasm here in our, our verse, verse 8, he says, I wish you really were as sufficient as you think you are. That way I could get a little piece of the action. I, I, I'd love to share the rule with you. I, I would love to have a part of this. But it's not as rosy as they think it is. And so Paul highlights this by telling them about uh, his position as a minister of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 4, in the next verse, verse 9, he says, I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, angels, and men. What a contrast. I mean, you Corinthians, you are so great and so high and so elevated and so royal. You're so spiritual. But your spiritual leaders, on the other hand, are poor, are weak, and they are a spectacle to the world. Is there anything off base here? You, you, you think that, you're, you, that you've arrived. And look at how poor and miserable your spiritual leaders are. Is there an inconsistency going on here? One might pry a little bit and ask why the experiences of the Corinthian Christians are so different from the experiences of their spiritual fathers in Christ. In many ways, I think maybe another message for another day, we could uh, take from this and expose the folly of the prosperity gospel movement. How is it that you, the prosperity gospel movement, could talk so much about how we are going to achieve uh, perfection in this life, that we are going to have financial stability and security, that we are going to have you know, some sort of uh, standing with the world, and yet all throughout church history, all of the faithful men and women of Christ have suffered again and again and again and again. Why, why is your experience have to be something different? from that. Paul pushes this seam a little further in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He says, uh, with again, no small amount of sarcasm, you guys are so smart and you're so wise in Christ. I wish I was more like you. One commentator suggests that Paul here is hinting that this church is dangerously is on dangerously good terms with the world. One of the things that you have to ask yourself is, if the world loves you so much, and the world never questions any of your theology or your philosophy, and the world embraces you and the world welcomes you to their table, the world invites you to speak at their uh, academic tables and, and the, the, the table of scholarly wisdom, and you're invited to all of these kinds of things, and the world never questions your theology or your philosophy, at some point you're going to have to ask yourself this question, whose side am I on anyway? It, God has told us that it's not going to be like that. The world is not going to be inviting us to join them for these kinds of conversations. John Bunyan, in his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, and by the way, um, if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you have committed a great sin, okay? 
I think it's uh, uh, Spurgeon that said that every year he read Pilgrim's Progress again. If you have not read that book, go buy Pilgrim's Progress and read the book. Um, of course, you know that it's an allegory. And so, um, out of all of the characters, two of the prominent characters would be Christian and Faithful. These are the two, two of the believing um, characters in the book. And they walk through this city called Vanity Fair, and Vanity Fair really puts a show on, and they're selling all of the commodities that the world is selling, all of the entertainments, all of the lusts, and all of the things that the world has to offer. And so... Uh, Christian and faithful are enemies in this city of Vanity Fair. Uh, but, but John Bunyan, in writing this book, actually brings in 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 9, the verse that we're on right now. And he quotes that uh, at this sentence. He says, The people, therefore, of the fair, this is Vanity Fair, made a great gazing on them. Some said they were fools. 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 9. The world is going to label us as fools. And I will say that as Christians and as things in the world get harder and harder as they are, we are going to have to become accustomed to the fact that we are going to increasingly be viewed as the outsiders, as the outcasts, as the fools by the world. You cannot be both um, wise toward God and wise toward the world at the same time. It's going to be a one or the other thing. There is no such thing as fence sitting for the Christian. The world believes that you are a fool. And one must think on this point for just a moment. If the Corinthian Christians are as quote-unquote wise as Paul is saying here, what distinguishes them from the world? Since Paul has spent all this time talking about worldly wisdom, and now he says, you guys are wise too, it sounds like Paul is putting these Christians in the exact same camp. The world is quote-unquote wise, and you are quote-unquote wise. Paul is shocking them into reality. He is pouring a bucket of ice-cold water on their heads in order to get them to wake up and recognize exactly what they're doing. He's cutting against their self-esteem, and he's cutting against their pride. And he finishes out this passage with a subtle but stinging rebuke, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13. He says this, "...to the present hour we hunger and thirst." We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Sign me up for that program, right? Paul and his band of Christian leaders are hungry. They are thirsty. They are homeless. What makes these uh, Corinthian Christians believe they are something special? Paul even adds to this list, we labor working with our own hands. Here's what one uh, writer says about this. In the ancient world, or more specifically to the cultural elite with enough leisure time to savor the wisdom of the world, manual labor was a marker of a demeaning and low social status. 
In Paul's case, the tent maker toiled in a small workplace, bent over a workbench like a slave, and working side by side with slaves, thereby being perceived by others and by himself as slavish and humiliated, of suffering the lack of status and so being reviled and abused. In many cultures, the upper echelons of society still assess a man or woman's rank in the world by looking at their hands and their fingernails. Nothing about Paul and Apollos were attractive to the world at all. They had nothing. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They had poor clothing. They were buffeted, which means they were harassed and beaten. They were homeless. These attributes are not on anyone's list of qualifications for a good leader. Someone who's homeless? Yeah, this is the life of Paul and of these spiritual leaders. But not only this, they are likely perceived as passive by the Corinthians because they bless when reviled. Uh, the, the Puritan John Flavel recounts uh, an interaction between John Calvin and Martin Luther. And this is the, uh, just a couple sentences here of the interaction that he explains between them. Um, uh, he says this, Mr. Calvin, though a man of quick spirit, had yet attained such a degree of this Christ-like forgiveness that when Luther, Martin Luther, had used some scornful language of him, the good man, John Calvin, said no more but this. So when Luther used some strong language against John Calvin, John Calvin said this about Martin Luther. Although he should call me the uh, although he should call me devil, yet I will acknowledge him to be an eminent servant of Jesus Christ. Let him call me a devil, I'm still going to say he is an eminent service servant of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the passage is talking about here when it says that we bless when we are reviled. And as the world increasingly clamps down on us as Christians, this is to characterize us as well. As we increasingly are mocked, we are to bless in return. And this is what Paul does uh, when he is mocked as well. So what are we to make of the passage in front of us today? Well, I want to conclude here really with one passage from the book of James and remind us of something very important when it comes to picking sides. Whose side are you on? Christ's or the world's? James 4 and verse 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle Paul in today's passage is inviting the Corinthian Christians to do a little inventory. He wants them to look at their lives, then look at Paul's life, and make a comparison. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are being persecuted by the world. They are, in the world's eyes, fools. They have nothing. They're living in poverty. And Paul wants them to see their folly. They have pursued worldly wisdom. They have pursued worldly status. 
they have pursued worldly positions. They have pursued worldly philosophy. And by the way, if you're wondering what all these things, uh, two weeks ago, I gave a whole list of worldly philosophies and worldly thinking that we are prone to accept today. And so, uh, if you have not heard that message, I encourage you to go back because this is building upon that to some degree. The Corinthians have embraced this worldly wisdom. They have turned from the simplicity of following after Christ. The world views Paul as a disgrace. The Corinthian Christians are supposed to see that and wonder why the world doesn't also view them as a disgrace. Christians today are to choose the path of Moses. In Hebrews 11.26 of Moses, it says this, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Moses said, here are all the treasures of Egypt laid out in front of me, and I will choose Christ, along with all the reproaches that the world has to give to me. Yet for some people today, the treasures of Egypt are far too enticing. Egypt... Of course, we're speaking figuratively here now of the world. Egypt's marketing department has been wildly successful, but its manufacturing department less so. Egypt promises more than just riches. It promises ideologies, philosophies, methodologies that make scripture appear to be outdated. And while not everyone is attracted to the gold in Egypt, there is something in Egypt for almost everyone. You don't want the gold? Here's the philosophy. You don't want the philosophy or the gold? Here's the entertainment. It has something for each of us. Paul calls us to reject this offer from Egypt and to embrace the lowly life of a servant, a.k.a. a Christian. Would you rather suffer affliction with God's people or enjoy all of the treasures of Egypt? The Corinthians chose the latter. They would rather enjoy the philosophy and the wisdom of Egypt. Paul calls them to choose the former. Remember this. Your devotion to Christ is directly correlated to your devotion to the world. The more you enjoy the world, the less you enjoy Christ. And the more you enjoy Christ, the less you enjoy the world. So you want a litmus test today? Do a self-inventory and see how much you are committed to the world. How much do you value the teaching of the world? How much has the world catechized you? How much of the world's thinking have you adopted? Or this. Does the world perceive you to be wise or a fool? Answer that question. What does this tell you about whose side you're on? When you do that, and when you know that, you have a better idea on how much you love Christ. God rules and reigns. At the end of the day, whatever side whoever's on doesn't matter because God isn't phased by that. His sovereignty isn't challenged or threatened. Psalm 2 and verse 4 He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You want to talk about mockery or some well-placed sarcasm? Here it is. Psalm 2 verse 4. God laughs. He holds them in derision. So you want to go your own way? 
Fine. It may be successful for a short time. The world may invite you to sit down at their table. You may experience the acclaim and the awards that the world has to offer. But ultimately, you'll find yourself working against the Lord and against his will. So here's the call for us today. Repent from pursuing Egypt. Repent from loving the world. And instead, become a fool for Christ's sake. The gospel is enough. Christ is enough. The wisdom contained in God's word is enough. We don't need anything outside of this. It may cost us. In fact, it will cost us. But the reward is so much more than that. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, may I encourage you that uh, today I would be happy. I'll walk up here when we're done. Love to chat with you about knowing Christ. Repenting and believing on him. What he has to offer is so much better than what Egypt has to offer. There might be a short-term gain by going to Egypt, but there's a long-term gain by going to Christ. Thank you, God, for today, your wisdom, your kindness. Help us to look to you, to be satisfied in you, to find all we need in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.